Lord, thank you for this beautiful day where we can come together and worship you. We ask, Lord, that you would continue to be glorified by our worshiping you in song, hearing the reading of your word and praying together. We ask that you would soften our hearts and prepare us by your Holy Spirit to receive what you have for us in your word. Lord, give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. Lord, that we would be edified by your word and you would be glorified. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 13. Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 13. I'm not sure if it's like the coffee or the passage, but I'm pretty excited about talking about the Lord's Prayer this morning. You know, there are very few things that are really broken down for us step by step like prayer is and like Jesus does for us this morning in our passage when we look at the Lord's Prayer. And as we talk about the Lord's Prayer this morning, I think we will find four different habits, four things that Jesus has to teach for us about how to pray. First, pray worshipfully. Second, pray confidently. Third, pray without ceasing. And four, pray together. So before we look at our passage this morning, I want each of you to close your eyes. Close your eyes. I don't have a paper bag. I'm not going to scare anybody here today. Picture the most beautiful place you've ever been. Your favorite place ever. Is it a beach? A campground? Maybe the mountains? A clear night under the stars? Well, did it ever occur to you that God made that to show us he's there, that he loves us, that he made these things to inspire worship from us and to draw us to him? You can open your eyes now. You don't have to keep them closed the whole sermon. Well, do you guys feel grateful about what God has made when you think about that? Well, that's the kind of gratitude, that's the kind of worship that Jesus wants us to articulate when we pray, which brings us to our first point. Pray worshipfully. You know, reminisce on the places where you have seen God at work in your life. Those blessings, those odd occurrences, that there's no other explanation other than God did that. Well, he planned those things because he loves us, because he wants to reveal himself to us, to draw us to him because he loves us. Think about the gospel, that story itself, where he showed his perfect love by sending his son to die on the cross for our sins. He did that to show himself to us, to draw us to him because he is perfect and because he loves us. And if that is the case, which it is, then we can praise and worship him in every prayer, knowing that he is perfect and so is his will. That's who God is. He's perfect. He's unconditionally loving. He's creative. He's all-knowing. And he is worthy of our worship. Let's look at verses 1 and 2. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. Well, the disciples likely have some sort of script in mind here. You have Jewish faith in the first century, as it tends to be today, was very liturgical. It was about memorized prayers. 
Liturgy is a good thing. We use it in worship all the time. But Jesus has something more in mind here. Yes, on one hand, he's given us a liturgical prayer. We pray this every week. But on the other hand, he has also given us something more. He's given us principles of prayer. It's like the two-for-one special on prayer. Let's look at verse 2. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Father, Abba. We're familiar with this term. There's a closeness here. There's an intimacy in the way that Jesus is teaching us to pray. While it wasn't um, completely uncommon, it was less frequent for the Jewish culture to pray to God in a way that was close and intimate. Typically, the word used for God would be less personal, Adonai, which simply means Lord. Well, here Jesus is teaching us to pray to the Father in an intimate and close way, but it is not just a personal prayer. It is also a submissive prayer. This prayer is not self-focused. This prayer is focused on God. And so we are shown here a key purpose of our prayer, which is to glorify and worship God. Let's continue to the end of verse 2. Your kingdom come. God is our king. You know, by praying for his kingdom to come, we are acknowledging a few things. His kingdom is better than our kingdom. His will is better than our will. You can't get better than perfect, right? He is perfect. He is the sovereign God. He is king above all kings. And we are not. See, Jesus is teaching the disciples, and by extension us, to pray worshipfully. It's a God-centered prayer. You know, prayer is not writing a letter to Santa Claus, right? Wish by wish, desire by desire. It's an audience before the throne of grace. So Jesus starts out the Lord's Prayer with a doxology to remind us of this. A doxology is a formula of praise. Right? Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. And so the prayer starts out with us acknowledging who we are talking to, who is worthy of worship, our sovereign and almighty God. And then Jesus transitions to petitions, things we ask for, which brings us to our second point, pray confidently. Let's look at verses 3 and 4. Starting in verse 3, give us each day our daily bread. You know, we live in a society of privilege and excess, of instant everything. So it can be hard to imagine having to ask for our basic needs to be met. But that's exactly what Jesus is teaching us to do here, to ask God for our needs. But there are a lot of us here who have experienced loss, who have had an experience of not having needs met. And so with seeing Jesus tell us to ask for our needs, to come confidently to God with what we need, it begs the question, how do we match this up with the loss that we experience in our lives? You know, I needed a job, but no one would hire me. Now I'm evicted, and my kids have no place to sleep. I don't know where my next meal is going to come from. My relative, my loved one, needed their cancer cured, 
it wasn't. You know, Jesus seems to promise us that our needs will be met, and yet we all come to the end of our rope one way or another. So how do we look at this? How does this vibe with what we're being taught in the Lord's Prayer? You know, one of the hardest seeming contradictions for me to talk about is how God can be intimately aware of our needs, intimately aware of our cares, how he is all-perfect, all-loving, and all-knowing, and yet his own son had no place to lay his head. His own son was homeless and brutally executed. Like, few things are more frustrating for me to look at a passage like this that seems pretty clear, and then to turn around and say, our physical needs, those things being met, is not a guarantee. You know, the Apostle Paul, it's the story of his life, and he lamented of this when he said, three times I pleaded for that thorn to be removed from my side. And God said, my strength is made perfect in your weakness. The guarantee is not the food. It's not the water. It's not the shelter. It's not the comfort. Following God doesn't carry with it a promise of luxuries, and it doesn't even carry with it a promise of fulfillment for our felt needs. But what God does promise is more valuable than any of those things. We'll see later Jesus promising us our true fundamental need that will be given to us when we ask for it in prayer. The Holy Spirit, which Jesus will talk about as we look at the end of our passage. Let's continue to verse 4. And forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Forgiveness is not a one-time event, right? It didn't just happen in our salvation. Forgiveness is the experience of the Christian life. We should be consistently confessing our sins to God and asking for forgiveness, as well as reconciling our relationships with one another, especially in the body of Christ. And we should understand this too. Verse 4 is not self-elevating. Verse 4 isn't self-idolization. It's not literally, well, you know, we forgive everybody when they offend us, so you should forgive us too. But rather, more literally, forgive us to the standard that we forgive others. That's why I love the way we pray it um, in our liturgy. Forgive us of our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. It's calling us to account. Because praying a prayer of forgiveness without being a people who forgive is hypocrisy. The only way that we can pray this prayer is if we are living the lifestyle of forgiveness that God commands us to live. And I get that none of us are perfect, right? We're here because we know we're not. But discipleship is a trajectory. It's a path. It's finding that habit, like we talked about last week, that honors God and not ourselves. And part of that is seeking to be a forgiving people. You know, the very fact that God will hear us and forgive us of our sins is a beautiful reminder of the gospel, that we can only approach the throne of grace with confidence in our confession if we know that through Jesus Christ we have been reconciled to the Father and have Jesus as our advocate for our continual forgiveness. Let's look at the end of verse 4. And lead us not into temptation. You know, like Jesus, when he asked the Father to remove the cup from him, we can ask, 
for our trials and our temptations to be removed from us. But we must understand, A, we will face trials and temptations. That's a guarantee. That's the experience of the human life. And B, God is sovereign. He's the one with the perfect will, not us. So we see Jesus teaching the disciples to ask God for things. He teaches them to ask for their needs, to ask for forgiveness, to ask for deliverance from their trials and temptations. He's encouraging his disciples, and by extension us, to confidently petition God for things. Well, here's what that doesn't mean. We talked about it a little bit already, but it doesn't mean we always get what we want. And it also means that we can't change God. You can't get more perfect than perfect. Numbers 23, 19 tells us that God does not change, ever. So it's important for us to understand this because we pray confidently to God, not thinking that we can change Him, but trusting that when we are before the presence of the Lord, when we are praying, God is changing us. C.S. Lewis puts it like this. I pray because I can't help myself. I pray because I'm helpless. I pray because the need flows out of me all the time, waking and sleeping. It doesn't change God. It changes me. Remember last week how we talked about habits forming us? Being in the habit of prayer forms us to be more like God. And so when we are habitually praying, the Holy Spirit is forming our heart's desire to align with God's desire more and more. Well, that's the end of the Lord's Prayer, as Luke writes it. But there's more to this passage and more to learn about prayer. Let's continue into verse 5. And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. The word impudence is better translated shamelessness, and it's actually a very difficult word to translate in the Bible because this is the only time it appears. It translates better into self-interestedness, if that was ever a word. Basically, what we see here is that the neighbor gives his friend the bread, not because they're friends, but for a self-interested reason. It's late at night. He wants to sleep. Anyone with kids knows, once the kids are up, it's going to be a while before you go back to sleep. It's a self-interested reason. And though God answers our prayers for his glory and for his purposes, according to his will, there is still a clear difference between the neighbor and God. While the neighbor begrudgingly gets up and gives the bread to his friend who has a need, our loving God hears and answers our prayer with that same love and concern that he has when he sent his son to die for us and gives us what is right according to his will. Let's continue into verse 9. And I tell you, 
ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. This brings us to our third point, pray without ceasing. Last week we talked about Mary and Martha being in continual habits of listening or worrying. These verbs here, ask, seek, and knock, are all intenses which describe an ongoing action, a habit. The continuous asking, the seeking, and the knocking. Well, who are we asking from? God. So we're praying without ceasing. Whose door are we knocking on? We're knocking on God's door. What are we seeking? We're seeking what is God's, what is his perfect will. Our lives are to be cradled in prayer. It's a continual habit to be praying without ceasing. Well, what happens when we pray without ceasing? There's a promise here. Whoever asks, receives. Whoever seeks, finds. Whoever knocks will have the door opened. It doesn't mean we always get what we want. Sometimes God's answer is no. Our life experiences speak for itself. Sometimes God's answer is no. Because his will, not ours, is always best. But remember what Romans 8.28 says. God works all things for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. But it's important to note, the word good does not mean what appears to be good, what we think is good. The word good means intrinsically good, whether it appears that way or not. And that's the promise here. That God answers our prayers according to his good and perfect will and purposes. And yet Jesus gives us a part to play here. Pray without ceasing. What, what does it mean to pray without ceasing? You know, it doesn't mean that we have our head bowed nonstop, and when your kids come and ask you if you can sign their field trip permission form, you're like, no, 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 I'm praying without ceasing. I can't talk to you right now. Or your neighbor comes to your door and says, hey, can I borrow your grill or your scraper? And you say, no, 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 can't talk. I'm praying without ceasing right now. You're not walking around with your head bowed. You know Monty Python where they're jogging around with their heads bowed? And it doesn't even mean... We're speaking. It means we're constantly in communication with God, listening often and speaking sometimes. You can pray without ceasing while we drive. We can pray without ceasing in the middle of a stressful argument. We can pray without ceasing in a business meeting. Or maybe we can pray without ceasing in the stressful argument in our business meeting. Pray without ceasing. Now, before we look at the last three verses of our passage this morning, I want us to consider a fourth point, and to do that, we have to look back at the Lord's Prayer for a second. So jog back with me to verse 2. Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. Our fourth point is pray together. A rope of three cords is not easily broken. You see, the plural pronouns used in the Lord's Prayer are completely intentional because there's no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian. We're not meant to do 
the Christian life alone. You know, our lives tend to be grossly imbalanced when it comes to compare between the time we spend by ourselves and the time we spend in Christian community. Now, don't get me wrong. Being alone with the Lord is great and needed. Having some you time, getting away from all the noise, is great and needed. But we cannot underestimate how badly we need one another for our prayer lives to be whole, for our prayer lives to be healthy and complete. It's one of the benefits of our tradition. In the Anglican tradition, the Book of Common Prayer is not meant to be light reading or even to be read and prayed alone. All of our services, morning and evening prayer, Holy Communion, are all written with plural pronouns. They're designed to be prayed together as a community. And so I want to encourage our families out there, let's get into the habit of regular family prayer. Be the model of a praying community for your friends and for your kids. Once a week, every other day, every day, just start somewhere. And we don't need to reinvent the wheel. You know, we have resources prepared for us, so we don't have to think, what am I going to pray about today? Well, we have a family prayer rubric in our Book of Common Prayer. I brought my copy. It's in the back. If you would like to look, let me know. We also have scripture. You can pray scripture to one another. Read the scripture. Digest it. Pray for, pray for each other reciting that scripture. A great place to start, the Psalms. There's a lot of them. Your options are pretty endless there. In an all-about-me world, let's get into a habit of being living examples, of doing life together, of praying together. Let's take a look at the last few verses uh, as we come to a close, starting in verse 11. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? God is the giver of good gifts. There's no doubt about that. But he's not the genie in the bottle. We kind of rub the lamp and he just pops out and gives us our three wishes. He doesn't cater to our selfishness. The way Jesus is teaching us to pray is, like C.S. Lewis said, to reorient our hearts to him, to change ourselves. You know, we're guaranteed a yes to only two prayers in all of Scripture. We're guaranteed a yes when we pray for God to give us wisdom. We see that in James. And when we pray for the Holy Spirit, as we see in this passage. God does love us. And he not only supplies us with our true need, the Holy Spirit, but the greatest gift. You know, when we are disappointed in God, it's not because he hasn't delivered on his promises. It's not because he lies or doesn't keep his promises in some way. It's because we have a culture that puts words in God's mouth, telling us things like, God will never give you more than you can handle. Or just have faith, brother, it'll all work out okay. God doesn't say that, but he does say yes to his promises every time. He will always give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. And that's the hope we have in the gospel. That we can trust in him to receive new life by his Holy Spirit when we ask in prayer. 
So what have we learned? When Jesus taught us to pray, he taught us to pray worshipfully. He taught us to pray confidently, to pray without ceasing, and to pray together. Life requires prayer. And as we continue to nurture this habit of coming together before the throne of grace, let's not forget to be grateful for the greatest gift God has ever given. The gospel. By sending his son to die on the cross, the father gave us the gift of salvation and the promise of the indwelling of God in us by the Holy Spirit. Newness of life, the greatest gift to all who repent and believe. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you uh, for your word. We thank you for teaching us to pray. We ask that you be with us as we go from here, that you'd convict us by your Holy Spirit to live for you, to continually come before you in prayer, to grow closer to one another by community, by prayer, by encouraging one another, and that you would be glorified above all in the rest of our worship today. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.